This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Hello, I'm Carl Pillemer. I'm the director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research, and I'd like to welcome you or welcome you back to our series of podcasts on doing translational research. In this series, we talk with researchers who are part of our center or who are coming to visit our center, whose work bridges the worlds of science and service in unique and interesting ways. We ask them to reflect on the process of doing translational research. That is how they actually do their work and stay on the cutting edge of developing new knowledge, but knowledge that helps individuals in real world settings. Uh, And my guest today is Dr. Charles Izzo. He's a research associate in the Bronfenbrenner Center, and he studies processes by which interventions influence human functioning and health. His work has focused on the, the factors that influence the quality of interactions between those in helping professions, like youth workers and home visitors, and the clients they serve, and translating research knowledge into useful tools for practitioners and administrators. And because we're friends, I'm going to be calling him Charlie today. Um, Charlie, um, uh, welcome, and thanks for joining us here. Thanks very much for having me. So we'd like to begin with a little bit of background about the kind of work you do. And I wonder if you would be willing just to summarize what you might see as your main research interest, or um, one way we think of it uh, is what's the biggest problem that the research you're doing tries to solve? Well, I'm most interested in really understanding and exploring the helping role and the helping relationship, because basically in just about all walks of life, uh, people will function best uh, when they are involved in some role, uh, either as a recipient of help or as a provider of help. You know, add to that, we have a huge infrastructure in the human services. And um, I think there's several different models that kind of guide how helpers actually provide services to recipients. And one of the things that is sometimes lacking is a real clear understanding about the helping role that people play. They sometimes think about what information do we need to pass on to people, what skills do we want to provide for them, how do we make it practical for people to receive the service, but the interpersonal dynamics around helping have been identified in a huge number of studies as the common denominator that really makes or breaks the effectiveness of a helping relationship. I mean, if I had to boil that broad area down to a question, I would say if you can improve people's understanding and and enrich their skills at using the helping relationship effectively, do you improve the impact of those services on the recipients? And do you improve outcomes uh, in the people that they're trying to help? You know, I think that is such an important topic, and it's actually been my impression that, and I'm curious whether you would agree or disagree, that in the human services and the health services, a lot of the focus is on providing technically competent care. And and people kind of dismiss these other things as soft skills or people's personalities or good bedside manner. Is it your sense that there's kind of a technology by which you can train people in these these kind of skills? That's the million-dollar question. Um, 
it is my sense that there is. It seems on the surface that there's an infinite number of factors that are going to affect whether you're going to be able to work effectively with somebody and how could you possibly uh, map those out so that you can prepare someone to really be able to navigate the different circumstances and the different needs that someone has. But I think that the more we rely on this explosion of new information in the past 10 years or so in the social sciences and in neuroscience, we can start to boil down the basics of helping into a, a set of, I would say, rather than skills and techniques, you can think of them more as a set of heuristics or rules of mm -hmm. thumb. Things that you want to have on your radar and be ready to pay attention to and to use that are likely in most circumstances to be helpful. So part of the skill set that you end up having to develop then is not how to ask questions effectively, how to listen effectively necessarily, but it's how to be in the moment and aware of what's needed at this moment in time for this particular person. That requires kind of unlearning some of the things that you may have learned as a human service professional or even just as a regular person. We go into the process a lot of times with an agenda and a set of ideas about what we think someone's going to need. And that's often based on some wisdom and some uh, good judgment. But what you see in most of the literature that I've been looking at lately and some of the stuff that we found ourselves in our own research, what people respond most to and that leads them to really value the relationship is when somebody really is present with them and curious and open to what the person's needs and experiences are. So I understand what you're saying. It sounds, it feels like this soft part of helping, or I'm sorry, the soft part of human services. We think of there being curricula that people need to follow and they need to, if they maintain fidelity to those, then they're going to be able to, you know, achieve certain kinds of outcomes. But without these other uh, considerations in mind, without being aware of how these things are going to fit with someone's needs, you probably get about 30 or 40 percent of the impact that you're going to, that you would ultimately be able to get if you were more aware of these other considerations. I know, I hear you saying something too that hadn't occurred to me, but it seems to really make sense that I know you know, our neuroscience and decision-making colleagues talk about uh, the difference between having to think things out and just going with, you know, the gist of the situation mm -hmm. or being able... It's almost like a, rather than checklists for helping, it's developing a mindset in which some kinds of helping uh, attitudes or behaviors are almost automatic. It's your orientation uh, or lens rather than, you know, smile, shake hands, that right. sort of stuff. So it's really different from these customer service things you see in that sort of... Exactly. You know. You know, one of the things I hope we can do is forge some better relationships or more regular relationships with some of our colleagues that are looking at these kinds of things. Because I think us that are out in the community trying to work with human service providers would benefit a lot from some of the cutting-edge work that's being done in our own uh, backyard here. Could you say just a word or two about the kinds of settings in which your research mostly takes place? So what sorts of workers or what sorts of organizations? Most recently I've been working uh, with the Residential Child Care Project, uh, Martha Holden and Michael Nuno and, and other colleagues, to basically address these same kind of issues in residential child care settings. So these are 
settings that serve mostly children that were in the child welfare system and for one reason or another can't live at home and foster care placements didn't work out. So they're living in a group care or institutional care for some unknown period of time. It may be a month, it may be 12 months. For some kids, it's as long as six or seven years. So here you have providers who are working in some of the most difficult circumstances that you can think of. And you With have, highly traumatized kids often, I would imagine. That's right. Kids for whom there are no, or often, no really healthy models of what it's like to be the recipient in a helping relationship. Because being a recipient in a helping relationship requires trust. It requires some degree of vulnerability. And uh, to be honest, being a good helper in a helping relationship requires some of the same things. And I think that folks who are doing this work in many ways have to unlearn a lot of what they've been doing over the course of several years in the field and relearn a new set of skills. So I'll say uh, just quickly that, you know, we've been talking about the helping relationship as this kind of microcosm, but as some of my other colleagues uh, can, can attest to, it's really a multi-level process. The things that allow effective helping to happen aren't just what's in the mind of the helper and what's in the mind of the recipient. What are the con what, they depend on what other conditions are present in the social context that basically allow that stuff to happen. Mm. So there is, it's almost this kind of ecological model in a way. Um, let me ask you, because you've been touching on this, and I think this question is related, but to maybe frame it a bit differently, um, if you were to think about this general area in which you've been working and do research, um, what are some things that you would like the general public to really know or understand um, about the work you're doing or about the area in which you work? If there were some take-home messages for a person who's not a specialist in this area but maybe works in it or, you know, um, has a family member in it? I'll start with what I think is a fairly simple point on the surface. When you dig into it, it's not so simple. But that most problems that we encounter, most problems that we're concerned about as a society or as a parent, can be addressed, improved, if not resolved, by addressing the issue at the level of the social context. We think about someone with behavioral dysregulation, someone who fights or someone who harms themselves, someone who's perpetually anxious, those kinds of things, as a problem within the individual. And obviously here we are in, in the College of Human Ecology and we realize that there are lots of ecological influences. But one of the things that we've seen in the Residential Child Care Project and in several other projects that I've worked on is that you can really see dramatic changes in people's well-being by making some finite changes in the way the social context works. Now I say it's complicated because if you want to change the way an adult interacts with a child, obviously that involves changing the way that that adult supervisor interacts with them. What conversations they have, what kinds of strategies and approaches they sanction and all of that. But I guess the point for the public is when you think of these complex problems that people have, it seems impossible to be able to 
pull them out of the morass that they're in. Particularly when they've been in a difficult situation for a very long time and they have very entrenched patterns of behavior, but partly through the literature that I've been reading lately and partly through our own experience in the project, the brain, the human brain, has an amazing capacity to write it, to write the organism. And the conditions need to be created for that to happen. So some of the more recent stuff that I've been looking at, you are a little familiar with some work that Lisa McCabe and I have been doing on the Superstar Practitioner Project, finding out you know, what, it, what is it about the helping process that allows people to really engage and be receptive to this helper and basically get themselves on a healthy path. One way you could boil that down, this is another point that would be useful for the people out in Radioland to think about, is it's a bit of an oversimplification, but you could look at the way we process our, our interactional experience as being driven by the threat system or driven by the exploratory and engagement system. These are two very identifiable neural systems that we have. It's part of human nature. And the things that you do, here's a rule of thumb for you, things that you do that can deactivate the stress system and the threat system and activate the engagement and exploratory system are your friend. These are the things that are going to be that are going to help this kid with an entrenched pattern of behavior actually be able to work with you. If you have something to offer this child, that's usually the path that you're going to be able to do it in. You know, I, I was thinking the, the reason, I, the, the idea that seems so groundbreaking to me in this, and it's one, even as someone who works in this myself, is trying to get in the mind of the person who's being helped. What makes the person... Um, able to be helped and, and to solicit help. I think that is really uh, powerful insight. Um, Can I make a quick comment sure, on that? Sure, of course. So we have a, uh, Lisa and I have an article in uh, the International Journal of Child and Family Welfare where we uh, used qualitative data from hundreds of young people who live in residential child care just to ask them, do you have a staff person here who's your favorite? Now to me that's signals someone who I am receptive to, someone who I can engage with. This is somebody who I'm going to... I'll let you, you help me. Single question. You know, it could use a whole long interview, but it was nice to be able to just boil it all down into one question. And they were very articulate and often fairly consistent across people about what they were saying. They were talking about things like, they're engaged with me, read that as they're present with me, they are genuine. And when I look at the neuroscience literature, one of the things I look at is the mirror neuron system is really key, tuned in to what someone's intention is. So if someone's genuine, I don't have to guess what their intention is. Um, flexibility, they're willing to individualize and understand who I am and what I need. There are other things that people can read. The but you're able to identify them. some of those factors. That's really intriguing. Yeah. This is part of the recipe for people, if they're going to have a card in their back pocket to think, what do I need to be thinking about in order to really work effectively with these kids? Flexibility isn't going to work for every kid all the time, but you ought to have it on your radar pretty consistently. And the concept of really being clear of what your own intentions are. Uh, well, Charlie, now you've mentioned uh, um, in a couple of places the kind of groups that you've worked with. And one of the things that we're very interested in 
since we call this doing translational research, uh, is you're a researcher, you're a clinical psychologist as well, uh, doing these large-scale projects. We're curious as to how your work involves community agencies or other non-academic uh, stakeholders or providers. Um, are there ways that you've discovered to effectively um, engage with them in your work or ideas or thoughts you have for how researchers can uh, better engage uh, stakeholders, community members, organizations who they might partner with? Yes, yeah, certainly. The, um, the balance we always try to walk is making sure we have something to offer and making sure that we are receptive and responsive to the unique needs and situations of the organization we work with. Even in a case where we're just doing research to learn from them, that's not so much the case with residential child care, but it's in the case with a lot of uh, translational mm -hmm. research. People want to engage in the research process if they find it relevant to them, and you have to have your listening ears on and uh, make sure that you understand, A, thematically what's going to be inspiring for these people so they feel like they're a part of something meaningful, and also what are the practical realities of making this happen. So, for example, as part of the, this big multi-site study of care that we did in North Carolina, I did a ton of interviews with staff people. Um, and, and to clarify, CARE is the name of oh, a comprehensive sorry. program that uh, uh, that your group is is running. Right. This is a program I don't want people to think by... it's packages delivered no, to Europe, right. you know, or that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. No, uh, it's uh, Children in Residential Experiences Creating Conditions for Change. That's a program developed by Martha Holden of the Residential Child Care Project, and I was involved in a multi-site evaluation of that uh, throughout North Carolina. Perfect. That clarifies it. <laughs> and uh, it was quite a task to be able to schedule lots of sessions to be able to get groups of children together so we could survey them and interview them, and groups of staff so we can do focus groups with them. And it really helped a lot that the people in the agencies were very interested in the kinds of questions we were asking. The survey that we developed for kids was actually composed mostly of items developed by kids. We went out to the agencies and said, we're going to be surveying kids all over the world to find out what it's like to live in residential child care. What should we be asking about? The room was electric. They are dying to tell you what it's like there, and I was surprised that after an initial little period of gripe session, they really got what we were trying to do. We asked all positive questions. We didn't ask, I think maybe there was one negative question in the whole survey. They understood. I'm asking you to envision what it is you need in order to do well here. Kids then, throughout all the surveys that we did, I tell that story, that story I just told you. And they it really, empowers them to really be a part of the research process. Yeah, it's meaningful to them, and the staff know that story as well. And in most cases, they really wanted to facilitate and make it happen. One of the quick examples, <clears throat> uh, Debbie Sellers and I are doing a, a project right now with uh, 4-H. It's not a research project, it's a Smith-Lever, so we're basically developing a set of workshops for the same purpose, to help folks get more tuned into the essence of the helping process and to use videotape feedback in order to, to be more self-aware of how they're doing this work and how they can improve. So each program is going to be its own version. We don't go in and say we have a set of manualized 
activities that we're going to run you through, and that's going to help you. We go in and say, we have some good ideas that have worked in other places. Let's shape this a bit to make sure it fits your circumstance. To me, that's actually a better, that has better internal validity as a test of our overall theory of change than maintaining fidelity to some program that was developed within a specific context. Um, So it's a lot about balancing what we need to do and the priorities we need to, to, to hold on to as researchers so that we can generalize our findings and being responsive to the needs of the organization. Yeah, I was just going to say that those methods, I was almost going to use those same terms. It sounds like it strikes a really good balance between the research rigor on the one side, but actually, you know, kind of honoring and respecting people's actual work situations in which, uh, you know, they have to actually try to implement some of these things. Exactly. See, I would consider it a confound in some ways if you didn't do that, because you're introducing a different kind of dynamic that may uh, work against the 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 essential kind of dynamics that you're trying to facilitate and if you ever want to learn more about that talk to martha holden and 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 her that whole team they really got it down of how to go in and let people create the program that's being brought to them and a lot of this information will be available on our bronfen brenner center website too well charlie this has been so interesting and i could go on for much longer but let me ask you our sort of final uh, uh, catch-all question, and that would be this, and this is it's a little bit of a difficult one, but let, we can try it. So based on all the work you've done, this kind of history of work with um, youth workers and residential care, other kinds of frontline folks and direct service workers, and the whole range of work you've been doing, if there was one real-world change that, that you would like to see the real world make uh, based on your research... So what would that be and why? And it could be two if you want it to be. But uh, what's, you know, um, if your work had its maximum impact, uh, what's the real world change that you would that you would like to see happen? I would say to uh, reduce people's reliance on behavioral scripts and mm-hmm. uh, increase their capacity to accurately read the current situation in whatever situation that they're working in, be it a helping situation Uh, I think, particularly within the human services, the field is ripe for a new way to understand what the role of the provider is. And if we can provide enough scaffolding, enough starter steps for people to be able to begin to engage in the process of using rules of thumb to guide them, but have the real energy in their work be driven by what's happening in the moment with the individual, then I think that the system is going to, has actually hope of really, I would say, changing the world. Without that, I think I am quite concerned about it because I think the, the human service system, the more it becomes rigid and driven by institutional concerns, the less faith people are going to have in it and it's not just a matter of we're going to achieve less health improvement, but I think that as a society, we're going to start to lose faith that the system can actually help. And I really think that it can 
really make a huge difference in, in healing society. You know, I uh, even though our time is probably running short, I would like to follow up on just one thing because I think it's so important. And I learned something new in each one of these. And this, for me, was a little bit of a revelatory moment in what you were saying. A lot of what happens in my world, which is working more in healthcare and long-term care, people come up with endless behavioral guidelines for staff. Always they have an acronym, you know, the mm -hmm. READY or whatever. So if residents in a nursing home, let's say, are being aggressive towards one another, they'll say, like, follow these five steps. Or if you want to deal with something else, you know, the idea is to give people almost a checklist of behaviors to use. And I hadn't thought about, you know, the alternative to that is a more, I, I'm, perhaps you can sum it up sort of better than I can what the alternative is, but I hear a, a more flexible mindset, um, you know, like some basic skills or orientations, um, ability to be present and so forth uh, that give you flexibility. Because I do think you're right that the tendency are these staff behaviors that you should always do in a certain sequence. And until this moment, it hadn't struck me how limiting that could be. What's going to deliver us from that is our executive functioning suite that we have within our beautiful brains. I think if you move to a linear sequence of rules, you will be shutting off your capacity to use your empathic sense and your adaptive sense. And those are the strongest assets we have as humans. And it's within our grasp, I think, to shift. We need to use some kinds of rules and regulations for some kinds of things. We just have to make sure that they don't get in the way of the most important, the most important role that we play, which is to adapt and to help each other adapt. That's a function of our social brain. Well, it's been a tremendous pleasure to talk with you, Charlie, and I've been talking with Dr. Charles Izzo of the Brunson-Brenner Center for Translational Research. Uh, it's been a great time talking with you, and we hope that our listeners will join us in the next of our series of podcasts, and thanks for being with us. Thanks very much, Carl. For more information about translational research or the work of the Brunson-Brenner Center, please visit www.brunson.com bctr.cornell.edu